Let's pray. Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. We're thankful for the message of life that we have, a message of not just how to be right with you, but how to live before you, that we might be your people and bring you honor and glory and praise. Father, we're thankful that when we live lives that are messy and inconsistent, your word is rock solid and remains the same. It remains truthful in every age. It is the guidestone by which our lives must return again and again and again to be corrected and refined and reshaped into the image of Christ. We pray this morning that we would not forsake your word, that we would not be indifferent to it. Father, we pray, Lord, that in the midst of so many other things at our disposal, so many good things that we could be reading and thinking about and doing and watching. Father, we pray that you would help us to be mindful that your word alone is what brings life to our souls. Your word alone is what creates and cultivates faith in your people. So God, we pray even this morning that we would listen well, that we would listen for your voice, that you would Comfort our hearts and convict our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15 this morning. Acts chapter 15. About six years ago, I was <clears throat> on a mission trip to the Philippines, and I was about uh, three-quarters of the way done. It was a two-week trip. I'd been there about a week and a half or so, and we were invited into someone's house where I essentially gave a sermon, uh, not to a large gathering, but about uh, 10 people there in that room. And I spoke on Titus 2. And the hospitality, as is always the case in the Philippines among the brothers and sisters there, was wonderful. After my talk, there was a little bit of discussion. There was a meal together. But there was also an unexpected response to that message. Again, I spoke on Titus 2 on grace in the life of the believer. I spoke about God's grace in sending Christ, God's grace for salvation, God's grace for sanctification. It was grace, 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 grace. So I was a little taken aback when I was done and I prayed, and one of the first comments I heard was, that was great, and we got to keep the law of Moses too. And I was like, were you not listening for the last 20 minutes? But actually, I didn't have anything to say. I was so caught off guard at first, I didn't know what to say, so I asked him to clarify, what, what do you mean? And sure enough, he believed that God's grace was not sufficient for our salvation. If we were to see God on the last day, we not only trusted Jesus, but we had to live by the law. Well, if we have at all read the New Testament, that should sound strange to us. And yet at the same time, maybe it wouldn't sound so strange. This is something that believers struggled with for decades after Christ accomplished his saving work on the cross and God raised him from the dead. And obviously from this man's 
question or response to me, it's still something that people struggle with today. And as we return to our series in Acts this morning, this is exactly what we see, a threat to the very essence of Christianity based in a desire to obey God's word, specifically the law that he gave to Israel through Moses. At this point in history is where we find ourselves in Acts 15, that the church is really at a crossroads, making this one of the most important chapters in the Bible. The importance of this first church council that convenes lies in the fact that it was the gospel message itself that was at stake. Well, if you can remember way back to the last time that we were in Acts, you'll remember that Paul and Barnabas had just finished their first missionary journey. They'd returned to their sending church in Antioch. At the end of chapter 14, Luke tells us that when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this leads right into Acts chapter 15. Uh, I invite you to uh, stand as, we read, as uh, you follow along as I read Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. That it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. 
to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers, by those who had sent them, to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of God. May he bless our reading of it. You may be seated. Are the Gentiles to be saved by becoming Jews? Or are they saved by Christ alone? That was the question before the church. If we wanted to put it more directly and with a more immediate application for us today, we might ask it this way. Are Christians saved by grace or by works? The answer goes to the heart of the gospel message. It was important not just in Acts 15, but it's important for us to consider today. And in these verses that we just read, Luke shows us how the early church answered this question. So let's walk through this passage and see these answers for ourselves this morning. First, we see the demand of gospel confusion. The demand of gospel confusion. We're not told how these men came to be in Antioch, but they are not nearly as joyful as one might expect from the report that Paul and Barnabas give. Yes, hundreds of Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, but they're Gentiles is the response. They're not Jews. So here is the demand they place on these brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Notice, it's not we would prefer you be circumcised. We think it's a good idea that you would be circumcised. You Gentiles must become Jewish by circumcision or Jesus means nothing to you. You cannot be saved apart from circumcision. Luke says that Paul and Barnabas engage these brothers. They dissent and they discuss, they challenge their beliefs, but that's not enough. The church appointed Paul and Barnabas, along with some others, to go to Jerusalem, check these things out. Why there? Because these uh, men, these people that are troubling with this confusion about the the nature of the gospel were from the region Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. And I think the church wants to know, is this what the apostles are teaching in Jerusalem? Is this what the church in Jerusalem is teaching? That yes, you believe in Christ, but you must also become a Jew. So they want to go down and check things out. Now, as a side note, we don't have time to dwell on a lot, but Um, I want you to notice in this passage as we walk through it, though the elders and the apostles are at the forefront of the action, 
the local church is actually directing things, both in Antioch and in Jerusalem. And we've talked recently uh, through our membership series and through Sunday school how the church is the final authority for matters of discipline and doctrine, and we actually see that here in our passage. So keep that in the back of your mind as we walk through this. Well, what happens when the apostles get to Jerusalem? It starts out well. The church welcomes them and hears about the success of the Gentile mission, yet, verse 5, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, maybe the guys in Antioch believe the same thing, but at the very least, these guys are saying it's more than just circumcision. Now they're saying the Gentiles need to be ordered to keep the law of Moses. Now, this didn't come out of nowhere. There's precedent for this. If you go back to the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, if someone who was not a Jew was to be saved, they would have to become a Jew. They would have to renounce their pagan gods. If they were a man, they would experience circumcision, and they would have lived under the law. They would have converted not just their religion, but every aspect of their life, because for Old Covenant Israel, those two things were together. How they lived their daily life and what they believed about God intersected in all areas. But that was the old covenant. Now the new has come in Christ. And these men are making demands that are out of step with those new covenant realities. They are confused about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and they are spreading confusion to others. That led to the debate for gospel clarity. That's what we see in verses 6 through 18, the debate for gospel clarity. Clarity. Luke says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, we're not actually given much details about the discussion that took place, but we are given details of how the debate ends. In other words, there's lots of conversation, and then we're told, okay, and here's how everything wrapped up. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James all add their input at the end. And we can break down their comments with greater nuance, but if we're just going to, for our purposes this morning, summarize the three main arguments that the apostles make, we see it like this. First, they argue that we must remember the Spirit's presence. We must remember the Spirit's presence. That's the first of Peter's two main points. And he refers back to his uh, encounter with Cornelius and those in his household that we read about earlier in Acts chapter 10. There, God directed Peter, even a somewhat reluctant Peter, to share the gospel with Gentiles, namely this man Cornelius. And what happened? The Gentiles were saved. They heard the gospel and they believed and it was immediate because God caused his spirit to come upon them in obvious ways that made it clear they were indeed saved. Peter makes the argument that, that God knows the heart, right? So if I share the gospel with you and, and you say you believe, I trust that you're sincere, but I don't actually know your heart. I can't see down inside of you to know whether or not you are truly a believer, but God sees the heart. And in knowing that they truly profess faith, he sent the Spirit to make it obvious that they were truly a believer, that there was equality in their salvation. They were saved Gentiles as Gentiles, not Gentiles who were becoming Jews. Verse 8, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts and faith. You can't argue, well, they weren't really saved, Peter. Or, or they're not fully Christians, Peter. No. They were uncircumcised. They weren't law keepers. And the Spirit's presence came 
marking them out clearly as part of the church, part of God's people, part of Christ's disciples, and therefore truly having experienced salvation. They receive the Spirit, the sign of being part of the new covenant, just as all the Jews did on the day of Pentecost back, back in Acts chapter 2. And Paul and Barnabas chime in on this down in chapter 12. And they tell about the many signs and wonders that God did to affirm the Gentile salvation apart from any works. So that's the first argument that they make. Remember the Spirit's presence. Secondly, Peter says, believe in Jesus' power. Believe in Jesus' power. Peter says, here's what I believe and here's what you should believe as well. Verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, what you haven't earned, what you didn't pay for. It's a bit like going down south. Uh, one time I, in high school, I was on um, a mission trip, probably I guess my first mission trip down in, uh, to Florida to help with Hurricane Andrew. And the minister of music at that time was the one leading the trip. And he liked to stop at Cracker Barrel for food. So we're, we got people down in this van. I saw one uh, amen back there. Uh, we saw people, we were driving down in this van, and every time we stopped for food, it was Cracker Barrel. And here's what I noticed. When we stopped in, like, the Kentucky area, they offered grits. Do you want grits with that? No. I don't know what grits are. I don't want grit. It sounds gritty. I don't want gritty things in my mouth. I don't want grits. But the farther south we got, the down into Florida, first of all, I was a sweetie or a honey, from every waitress, and they didn't ask. They just gave you grits. Grits was an act of grace in their minds. They are giving them to you freely, openly. You don't even have to ask for it. That's what grace is, and in many ways, that's what salvation is as well. It's not something that you, it's not something that you earn. It's not something that you pay for. It's God's gift to you. And so grace means we add nothing to what God has done in Christ for salvation. It means Jesus didn't do his thing, now we do our thing and we're saved. No, it means Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. We are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus to us. Jesus endured God's wrath against our sin so that we might be forgiven. Jesus lived a life of righteousness before his heavenly Father that that might be considered ours and we might be acceptable before God. Jesus has ransomed us from sin's power in this life and he has overcome death's penalty that we might be with God in the life to come. From beginning to end, salvation is what has been accomplished in Jesus. It comes to us as an act of grace and not anything that we can contribute to or add to. Nothing we could ever do, no matter how good, would ever be able to add to what Jesus has already done. No amount of religious acts or moral deeds, no amounts of giving to charitable organizations. There is nothing good that we could do that would be so good as to cause God to accept us. We must rely on the grace that has been given through the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus Peter says, trying to burden the Gentiles with the yoke of the law, which not even them as good Jewish believers could bear, is putting God to the test. Why are you testing God? He says, in other words, you are challenging what God has said and done. It's one thing if my kids come and say to me, I don't like the way you cook dinner. It's another thing to go to God and say, I don't like the way that you have ordained salvation. I don't think you got it right, God. Peter says, that's what you're doing by saying, 
God says it's grace, but you say, and we got to keep the law. No, you're testing God. You're criticizing God. Well, that's Peter's second argument. And after Peter and Paul and Barnabas finish speaking, James draws attention to himself and he makes his argument. Specifically, he advised the church to align with God's purpose. Align with God's purpose. Now, if, if you were in the audience that day, and if you were not convinced by Peter and Paul, it, you might think James is your man. He, he, here's a man who openly and obviously loved God's law in the Old Testament. He, he, he was known for that among the early church and even the, the generation afterwards. He was known for his authentic life, for his rigorous piety. He was nicknamed Camel Knees because he was literally on his knees before God in prayer so much, interceding for himself and for all the churches. And, and so those of the Pharisee party may have thought, James is our man. James is going to put everything right here. He's going to show we're actually right and Peter and Paul are wrong. But that's not what happened. He didn't agree with those pushing for the law. Those former Pharisees who loved God's word, but they had missed one of the key purposes that God had laid out in that word. Namely, that Peter's experience of the gospel and salvation and grace going to the Gentiles lines up with exactly what God said he would do in the prophets. And he quotes from Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That remnant of mankind may seek, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. James says, like all the other prophets, Amos shows God's purpose for the Messiah. He will be a king in the line of David. You remember David, the, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, the king by which all other kings were measured against. God made a promise to him that his tent, his dynasty, would never end. As long as there was a throne in Israel, there would be a son of David on that throne. And one day there would come a son whose kingdom would never end. But what do we see when Jesus comes into the world there's no throne in Israel. There is no dynasty of David. There is no ruling Davidic king. And yet, and yet, God fulfilled his promises in Christ. He made him to be a king with a kingdom that would never end. And he did not merely reign over Israel. No, a believing remnant from all humanity has now been drawn to Christ and is part of his kingdom. Gentiles come as Gentiles to believe in Christ for salvation and be a part of his kingdom. And that's what James says. He says, that very thing has happened. God promised it would happen. This was the purpose for which he sent Christ, not just a Jewish Messiah, but a global Messiah. And now this is the evidence that God is keeping his promises. So those were the arguments that the apostles made in the midst of all this conversation. And those arguments ultimately proved to be persuasive. And it led to the decision for gospel community. The decision for gospel community. That's what we see in the rest of our passage, verses 19 through 35. Having heard a long discussion, the final, final comments from the apostles, the church decides on the issue, and that decision still has implications for us today. What did they decide? They decided that they should do two things. First, they should reject the burden of legalism. 
they should reject the burden of legalism. James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The gospel of grace alone was upheld that the law should not be added to what God had already done. The Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to experience forgiveness and life from Jesus. As David Peterson says, Jewish Christians should recognize the freedom of Gentile Christians to live a life that is determined by Christ and his spirit not the demands of the law. That's exactly what the early church was saying here. And this principle still holds true today. We don't despise the law of Moses. We don't reject it and ignore it. No, it is God's word. And it is still helpful for believers to see the glory of God's character, his concern for a holy people, and the foundation that was laid that foreshadowed Christ. But no part of the law can be made binding on the new covenant believer in Christ. Moreover, beyond the requirements of the law in the Old Testament, nothing, nothing, no tradition or extra idea or act of devotion, discipleship, nothing should be added to our sense of acceptance before God, especially not imposed by someone else. Don't let someone tell you, yeah, Jesus is great, but you've also got to do this in order to be acceptable to God. That, that, that stands contrary to everything, everything that Christ came and accomplished and what the apostles and the church decree here. The early church rejected the burden of legalism for the Gentiles, but they also said that we should limit our freedom through love. We should limit our freedom through love. James says, therefore, it is my judgment that we should not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. When you say, whoa, 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 wait, what just happened? It was all grace, 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 Jesus only. But now, well, and here's a couple of laws. Does that make sense? Not when you first read it, but, but we got to think about this for a minute. So, so wait a minute, what is James actually saying here? Is he really saying, well, here's just four laws that the, that the Gentiles have to keep? No, it's, it's not. That's not what's happening here. At the same time, we could probably give a four-part lecture series on this passage because so much ink has been spilled over this. So many keystrokes on the laptop has been made just describing and trying to figure out exactly uh, really, where these things came from? Where do these four things came from? Why these four things? Because they actually don't cohere very well together. Most everyone agrees that three of the suggestions clearly involve food, which is negotiable. Jesus even said it was negotiable before, uh, before this passage. The things polluted by idols, that is, food that would have been generated from idol worship and sold in the marketplace, Things that have been strangled and from blood that is not prepared according to uh, Jewish standards. Blood not properly drained from the animal you're going to have for lunch. And then the fourth thing, sexual immorality stands out because sexual immorality is never a negotiable for God's people. God doesn't say, okay, well, you can be sexually immoral here or, or just a little bit. No, there's a clear line that says this is always sinful. And so you've got these three things that are always negotiable and this one thing that appears sinful. And so people have tried to understand what, what, what is going on here? What, what, what is James getting at? And this has led some to believe that James is actually using, uh, which he does actually use in the, in the Greek, a generic term for sexual immorality. He's not naming any specific sin. 
And in doing so, he's possibly referring to a looser standard on family relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles. So if you remember back in the Old Covenant, God set very specific boundaries on who can marry who within the family and the tribal structure. So you couldn't marry close relatives. And actually, that's trickled down to our own laws. Uh, And now we see science has a a lot of good uh, understanding of why God made those laws. But the Gentiles had no such boundaries. It would not have been common, but it also would not have been unthinkable for a a brother to marry his sister among the Gentile peoples. So much like the issues of food, breaking those limits would have been repugnant, if not unthinkable, though, to the Jewish people. Again, there's no real clear answer on where these four things come from. They don't, they don't, scholarship is divided because they don't line up easily from anything. Some say Leviticus 17 and 18. Some say pagan temple worship. Others say different places. They don't correspond well. But here's, here's my thing. Here's my thought. Here's my point. We don't really need to know where they come from to understand the point that James is making here. The intention is very, very clear, I believe, and it's borne out by the rest of the New Testament. These directions were not necessary for salvation. Otherwise, it would violate the whole point that's been made by James himself in the previous verses and by Peter and Paul and the other apostles. No, these directions are not necessary for salvation. Salvation comes through the grace of the Lord Jesus, verse 11. And although the Gentiles should not be burdened by the law, they should also be willing to limit their freedom from the law for the sake of love for their Jewish brothers who still cherished and lived by the law. And I think that's the point of verse 21. James makes his statement in 19 and 20 and he grounds it for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Most most Christians who were Jews at this time would have still loved the law of Moses and allowed their lives to be regulated by it, particularly when it came to things like, like food and dress and, and, and interactions on um, uh, these kind of social issues. It was part of their ethnic identity. At the same time, it was not required of them, nor was it required of the Gentiles. And so what the concern is is that this law is going to become a means of division in the church. You're going to end up with the first Gentile church of Jerusalem and the first Jewish church at Jerusalem betraying the unity that Christ has worked for and prayed for among his people. And so they want to remove that barrier. And so James is asking the Gentiles to love people more than their freedom. To love people more than their liberty from the the law. How? By specifically allowing themselves in these most sensitive areas of the Jews to limit their freedom and, and be able to sit down and have meals and to live closely with their Jewish brothers and sisters. You don't have to keep these laws for salvation, but if you follow these directions, it will make it easier for your Jewish brothers and sisters who have a more sensitive conscience. Why does he ask them for this? Again, it's to facilitate fellowship and intimacy among God's people. And not surprisingly, Paul advocates and recommends a similar approach in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 9. Notice how the rest of the church responds to James' solution. Verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, and the whole church. Not just his decision, but to make a point of telling and assuring the Gentiles that this is, this is what we've come to. That is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone that saves. But at the same time, we, we, we want to be together in love 
And so be willing to let go of those things that, that, that are non-essential for the sake of your brothers. We read that they chose some brothers from the Jerusalem church to send along with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. We don't want there to be any second guessing. Well, Paul and Barnabas said this when they left, and they said the Jerusalem church believed that, and we want to believe them. No, no, let, let's just send a bunch of people there who, that are going to be able to, by their own testimony, affirm this is what was decided at the Jerusalem church. This was a decision, even according to verse 28, not by mere human wisdom, but by the Holy Spirit. This is what makes God himself happy in how we land on these things. When the believers in Antioch heard the letter that was read to them, verse 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Well, well, that's kind of a walkthrough of this passage. And we kind of shot some arrows of applicational direction as we went through it. But now I want us to think about how do we specifically think about applying this text today? What, What do we do with this as Christians? What do we do with this as Providence Bible Fellowship, And so what, what, I, what I want to suggest are my own kind of four directions for how to apply this passage today. Four directions for getting the gospel right and keeping the gospel at the center of our lives together. So this is the last point in your notes, point four, the directions for gospel centrality. The directions for gospel centrality. Most important, it begins with this. We must define the gospel. We must define the gospel. There are lots of so-called gospels out there. There are lots of messages that are contrary to what we find in the New Testament that purport to be a God-given biblical message. Even in Paul's day, in Galatians 1, he says there are many so-called gospels, but there's only one true gospel and the others will send you to hell. And so we need to make sure that we know the gospel really, really well that it has definitive boundaries in terms of our understanding and our ability to articulate it. Back when I worked at the the credit union not long ago, uh, a counterfeit $10 bill came through in one of our night deposit drops. And it actually wasn't that hard to spot. It came in with a bunch of other cash. And the interesting thing was at that point, having worked as a teller, I had been handling cash so much that money, even though unknowingly to be at the time, felt a certain way, and I was used to how that felt. And so as I'm, as I'm leafing through the money, the first thing that detected this counterfeit was actually my fingers. And I thought, this doesn't feel right. And I looked closer at it, and, and it became obvious that this was uh, a, a, a fake bill. The wrinkles were printed on instead of actually being a part of the paper, right? Chinese writing, it was pretty obviously a fake. Uh, and immediately it went into an envelope and was sent off to the fraud department. And And loved ones, it should be the same for us with the gospel. We should know it so well. We should love it so well. We should think about it so often and so well that any deviation is immediately obvious to us. Wait a minute, this isn't gospel. This isn't the truth. This isn't the real thing. This is the message of, of grace. How do we train ourselves for that? Well, two things. First of all, take time to meditate on and even memorize rich, clear gospel passages from the Bible. Just saturate your mind with those things because that's how we're going. That, 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 that is the, the very basis and foundation of what we believe the gospel to be. Not our ideas, but what does God say in his word. But at the same time, there are helpful resources that unpack and fill out and help us to meditate on the gospel. So take time to read. And not just the latest thing going, but good, sometimes old books on the gospel that help direct and sharpen our thinking on these things. It's the most important message in the history of humanity. We must simply take it seriously. 
So we should define the gospel, but secondly, we should defend the gospel. We should defend the gospel. Uh, Now, of course, we should defend the gospel under any sort of attack, but specifically, I'm thinking here of defending it against legalism. Defending it against the mindset that it's actually Jesus plus something else that makes me acceptable to God. God's not going to like me. God's not going to love me. God's got not, excuse me, God is not ultimately going to save me unless I add this other thing to what Jesus has done. And the reality is, that's hard for a lot of people. In fact, Mr. Justification himself, Martin Luther, wrote this in his commentary on the letter to Galatians where he's hammering home justification by faith alone and grace alone. No works, no works. Nevertheless, he says, note this most carefully, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. In many ways, we are by nature legalists. We, we, we feel like we've got to do something. And God says, no, I've done it all. I've done it all. And so be on guard and defend against, both in your own life and in the lives of others, defend against thinking that goes something like this. God's not going to love me if I don't believe in Jesus and experience baptism. God's not going to love me or accept me if I don't believe in Jesus and have a great devotional life or cultivate a well-ordered home or read the right Bible translation or raise Christian children or homeschool my children or abstain from worldly things when others don't or be involved in ministry and on and on and on. Whatever it is, if it's anything plus Jesus, it's wrong. It's wrong. And we must be on guard against it. We must be on guard against and defend against the temptation to find our worth and acceptance before God in something other than Christ. Both for our own hearts and in the hearts and lives of our brothers and sisters. Third, we must display the gospel. We must display the gospel. We display the gospel by imitating Christ and allowing him to change our lives. In this context... We should display the kind of love, sacrifice, and unity that only the gospel can bring. No no other human institution, organization, or community can display the kind of love and sacrifice that the church can when we're at our best, when it's truly gospel-centered. The specific issue here we have was flexing in freedom to be around Jewish brothers and sisters. That's not going to be a common application anymore. Uh, Unless you live in some very specific parts of the world, it's just not going to be a going concern. But the principle remains, and we need to continue to live out that principle and apply it to all kinds of things. We're all going to have our own preferences and convictions about uh, about important issues related to church life and about our life in this world. But if those things do not rise to the level of the gospel itself, the nature of God, the salvation that he provides, whether or not someone is actually a believer... And as God's people, we must be willing to be flexible. We must be be willing to bend on those things. Those especially on the end of seeing more freedom in Christ on issues should be willing to bend towards those that have a weaker conscience and see less freedom in Christ. The pressing issue on everyone's mind these days is or are the stay-at-home orders because of COVID-19. Some are quick to see these things as a government overreach that violates the Constitution. 
Different people see those orders as having worse side effects than the spread of the virus itself, like an increase in poverty and abuse rates. Others are thankful for the precautions because they have a desire to prevent the sickness from spreading and see themselves as loving their neighbors well through those things. Still more see this as simply a Romans 13 issue. This is what our government is asking, and as good Christians, we should comply. They're not hindering God's calling on their life nor leading us to sin, so we should simply submit as we're called to. Yet at the same time, from all sides in this, that we struggle with this world of 24-hour news cycle and viral things that may or may not turn out to be right. We have conflicting data, and the temptation is to become entrenched in our position with tunnel vision to only see what we want to see. But in light of this text, we have to ask ourselves, how do we display the gospel to one another, especially as we begin gearing up for the return on Sunday services and moving out of these stay-at-home orders from COVID-19? After all, live streaming, what we're doing right now is really just a pale imitation of what God has a vision for us gathered together for corporate worship. It's wonderful to have this as an in-between, but it should not be the permanent expectation, that the permanent way in which we desire to be together as a body. So let me suggest three ways that we can begin applying the principle of Acts 15 and display the gospel with one another in the coming days. First, Let's just acknowledge that none of us are experts on anything related to this. We are not experts on public policy. We're not experts on viruses and contamination. We just aren't. Most of us are not even experts on the Constitution. There's no chapter and verse in the Bible on this subject. So let's just start with a position of humility before one another and before God. Next, let's be patient and loving toward one another. If you're ready to get back at it tomorrow... Be patient with those that aren't ready for that. They may have legitimate concerns that you don't share. Love them. Love them enough not to belittle them, either to their face or on social media. When we do open back up, and if you aren't ready, don't think the worst of those that show up. Be patient with them. It might be safer than you realize, or they just might be wrong. Either way, love them. Be patient with them. Last, let us be Christ-like in putting others before ourselves. Paul says in Romans 14 and then in 15, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Later he goes on and he says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. So as we interact with one another on this issue and in the coming days, both face-to-face and on the phones, on social media, let us remember that all things are permissible, but not all things are helpful, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. To keep the gospel central in our lives, we must define it, we must defend it, we must display it, and finally, we must declare it. We must declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. If this gospel message is so important, it must be shared. It must be proclaimed as far and wide as we are able to see happen. To not share the gospel would be like finding the cure for cancer in a lab and then locking the formula up in a drawer somewhere and never sharing it with society. Worse yet, it would be like us watching with our very eyes someone drowning in a pool 
and not picking up the life preserver right next to us and throwing it to them in the water. Inherently, the call to follow Christ as a disciple has in it a call to proclaim Jesus that others might become his disciple as well. Now, maybe you're watching this this morning and you've never followed Jesus. Maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus. Maybe, I would find it unusual, but maybe this is the first time you've actually even heard of Jesus. Wherever you're at, you need to hear and think through And I would say embrace this message that we've been talking about the gospel, about preserving it and defining it and defending it and so many of the things. What all of this commotion was about in in our passage, Acts 15, back in the very first century, the early days of the Christian church, you need to come to terms with this because this message is not just for Christians. Christianity doesn't believe that we just have truth for us and other people have their own truths. We have a universal truth because it comes from God and not us and our own ideas. Maybe you're here this morning and you're very religious. But you're confused like the men in our passage. You think that there is something you can do or something good in you that in the final day will make you acceptable before God. Friend, there's nothing. There's nothing that we can do. The Bible says that down to the very core of our being, all of us, you, me, everyone, are sinful people who deserve God's wrath because every day we live in open rebellion against him. And the only chance we have is Jesus and the grace that has been given to us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So look to Jesus and Jesus alone to be made right with God. Remember that we said earlier, forgiveness and acceptability with God comes through the work of Jesus and nothing else. It's not something we earn. It's not something we even deserve. It is God's gracious gift. Jesus has done it all. Look to him in faith and trust him to bring you to God. And for those of us who have followed Christ, for those of us who have believed and trusted in his grace, the end of the matter is clear. Hold fast to the gospel message. Let no one add to Jesus' finished work. And then love his people. Love them so much that you are willing to give up whatever is necessary on secondary issues to promote unity among the church. May God help us in these things. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus, and the completeness of the salvation that we have in him. Father, help us to be diligent in preserving the truths of the gospel message that we have heard and believed and that you've entrusted to us. The salvation, the forgiveness that you offer, the new life that comes to your people comes not by works, but by Christ as an act of your grace alone. God, even within our hearts, keep us from insecurities, keep us from tendencies toward legalism. Let our lives together as a church reflect these things. Loving the gospel, loving one another, and loving sacrificially, just like Jesus did. He sacrificed his own life to bring us to you out of love for his people. How much more ought we to love one another? All sinners saved by grace alone, imitating our Savior Jesus. We're going to take a few moments now of silent prayer. I want to encourage you to ask God to, again, 
comfort your heart where it needs to be comforted and to correct your heart where it needs to be corrected. Like, we might live fruitful lives together as God's people.